Film Jive is made possible by Audible, the world's largest selection of audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for a free 30-day trial and an audiobook of your choice, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Hello and thank you for listening to the Film Jive Podcast's fourth annual Golden Jive Turkey Awards show where we are counting down our top 10 favorite films of the year of 2014. In this case we will be awarding two films with the coveted Golden Jive Turkey bust. My name is Zach and I'm joined by frequent contributor Nick Weekly. Welcome Nick. Thank you very much Zach. Nice to be here again. I'm, I'm amazed this is the fourth one of these. Um... Did we hear back from previous filmmakers? Did they receive those busts safely? Wes Anderson wrote a very kind tribute to the show when he received his bust. Oh, okay. I never... You you need to send that to me. I never got it. I actually think it may even appear in the background during one of the scenes in the Grand Budapest Hotel. (laughs) I, I, I heard at one point that it was actually going to be the Golden Jive Turkey bust that everyone was after in the film rather than the boy with apple painting. Right, yes, of course. And it, can you just describe to the listeners what a Film Jive Golden Turkey bust looks like? Well, it's uh, it's actually just a... Golden Turkey. It's a, it's a, a dead turkey that I took to the taxidermist <laughs> and then spray painted with gold. So those cease and desist letters you got from Wes Anderson were completely <laughs> justified then? Yeah. Uh, Nick and I will be sharing our favorite 10 films of the year from 2014, as well as uh, mentioning some of the films that we didn't get a chance to see, and then briefly sharing some of the films that just missed our top 10 lists. Uh, throughout this episode, uh, we'll also hear from a few guests who appeared on the show in 2014. They'll all be discussing their favorite film-going experiences from last year. So uh, with that said, we have a lot to get to, so let's go ahead and get started. Briefly before we begin discussing our list, Nick, were there any films from 2014 that you were unable to see prior to this recording that you were anxious to check out? Uh, Yes, there were a few. um, And whilst I've been doing some last-minute cramming for this episode, there were a few films that I did not get to see. Stop me, Zach, if you've seen any of these. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. So, The Fault in Our Stars is one. I have seen it. And and what were your thoughts? It is what it is. You know, it's a young adult romance. It's elevated by Shailene Woodley's performance, who's very good in the film. But it also, it's a, you know, I don't know how much you know about the subject matter, but it is very much dealing with cancer mm-hmm. and young people with cancer. And the one thing I did admire about the movie is it doesn't use cancer as a dramatic crutch. It's not a movie about cancer. It's a movie about a relationship between these two individuals who just happen to both have cancer and the tribulations that come from that. So it it is better than most movies of its kind, but it's not something I would say is uh, incredibly memorable. Okay. Uh, Under the Skin was another Birdman 
uh, Big Hero 6, the, the Disney animated film. Pride, which is a um, British film about uh, gay and lesbian supporting minors during the miners' strike in the 80s, which I hear is very good, and I think could quite possibly have made my top ten if I was able to find it, but um, unfortunately it wasn't available. Fury, the, uh, the tank film with Brad Pitt. Uh, John Wick, which I hear is quite an underrated uh, action film with Keanu Reeves. Big Eyes, the, the Tim Burton film with Amy Adams. Interstellar, I think one that certainly would have a good chance of getting into my list. I'm usually a big fan of Chris Nolan and sci-fi. And I uh, was very disappointed not to be able to, to catch Interstellar. Uh, Black Sea, submarine film with Jude Law. Paddington, something that I can't say I was... Uh, particularly excited about when I heard about it, but um, I gather it's very good and um, am quite keen to see Paddington. Uh, Blue Ruin, I hear it's a very good revenge film, and uh, Into the Woods is another one that I didn't get time to see. Um, as for myself, and Nick, please stop me if you've seen any of these movies. Okay. A Thousand Suns, Canopy, A Midnight Summer's Fantasia, Ming of Harlem, 21 Stories in the Air. Oh, I thought you were about to say 21 Jump Street. I was going to say 22 Jump Street, rather. Um, Frederick Wiseman's documentary, National Gallery. Uh, Norte, The End of History. Sea of Vapors. Silvered Water. The Creeping Garden. Claude Lonsman's uh, follow-up to Shoah, The Last of the Unjust. Uh, the Missing Picture, which was a, a Best Documentary Oscar nominee from uh, last year. The Seventh Walk, Timbuktu, and Winter Sleep. And I should mention, uh, there are also several films that you listed that I didn't get a chance to see. For instance, uh, Interstellar. Okay, my number ten is The Imitation Game. The uh, film starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Keira Knightley, directed by Morton Tildum, who was previously known for the, the Scandinavian film Headhunters, which I actually saw very recently and uh, really enjoyed. An excellent crime, crime thriller. And The Imitation Game, I thought, was a fairly strong film, mostly for the performances. I think it um, was let down in some other aspects, but the reason for me that it it snuck into number 10, was thanks to uh, mostly Benedict Cumberbatch and Keira Knightley, but it's an all-star best of British cast, really, with Mark Strong, Matthew Good, Charles Dance, all, all delivering expert performances, I thought. Um, and it really showcased Alan Turing in a way that showed the pressure of the, the code-breaking that he was working on. It emphasised the, the importance of his work involving Enigma, which was uh, to do with breaking the code that the Nazis were using to communicate. And a lot of people think solving that code really um, almost won the war for the Allies. And it's a story that wasn't really well known until quite recently when official reports were released about it within the last 10 years. And Alan Turing, someone who I don't think has ever really received the credit for that work is uh, really put into the spotlight in this film. Cumberbatch himself shows um, shows us that Turing was quite a, a cold character. He's quite calculating. It, 
as you'd expect, he, he's quite an unusual person, focused on this code in particular, solving puzzles, and this is probably the biggest, this is the biggest one he had to deal with in his life. But what Cumberbatch does that I think is, is really good in this is that he shows there is a vulner, vulnerable man underneath this, this character. Um, it takes a bit of time to, to learn that, but we soon see it. Kira Knightley, who I've I've often been a critic of, I thought was very strong in this too, as a, as a sort of the only friend and, and confidant that Alan Turing was able to to connect with. The only parts that I think let this film down a bit and why it couldn't have gone on uh, to be a stronger film is mostly down to the, the script, which I think does have some slightly awkward and clumsy dialogue uh, sometimes with Alan's social interactions didn't feel quite right for me and also I thought the look of the film unfortunately mate it looked a little bit like a tv drama at times um, and less of a exciting film I did I haven't seen it but I just to chime in on mm. that it it seemed like a movie that visually was very devoid of any kind of personality Yes, and I think that's that's what that's the weakness with it. Is some of the visuals are a bit a bit dull. Um, it could have done with a bit more energy and imagination in terms of that. But but what really sells it is the the performances. Oh, and, and one other slight uh, critique of it is is the ending. I thought because whilst we got to spend a lot of time with Alan Turing during World War Two and his his time breaking the Enigma Code, I wanted to see more of his life after that event, and we got sort of a brief brief glimpse of it but really it's a very tragic ending for alan turing and um i don't think they really got that across we sort of got a glimpse of it and then it reverted back to to the ending of uh, of the war and it was a slight disappointment for me i think it could have had a bigger impact in its closing uh stages so the film doesn't really get into how the government received his homosexuality doesn't get into what they actually did to him there's uh there's hints of it mm. you get an idea but i just think i would have liked to have seen a bit more of that and and the the troubles he went through after you know completing all of this work during the war you, you know you sort of get a tragic element from it but when i think of of something like the theory of everything which we've seen recently which really hits home with Hawking's Stephen Hawking's tragedy, this falls short, I think, in in really emphasizing Alan Turing's uh, closing chapters of his life. Mm -hmm. My number ten is a spell to ward off darkness, directed by Ben Rivers and Ben Russell. This is a pseudo avant garde documentary which follows uh, the musician Robert Aubrey Lowe. And for those that are not familiar with uh, the film, the basic conceit is that we follow this man as he enters and exits three different forms of alternative living. So we begin in an Estonian co commune that exists in the uh, Finland wilderness, and it's completely isolated from the rest of society. That portion of the film is basically the first act, and... Uh, the camera kind of treats these subjects as a sort of ethnographic study. So we just kind of observe them building structures, performing music. Um, there's an extended sequence where they 
partake in some kind of ritual that involves jumping in and out of hot bathtubs. So then Robert Lowe, the the musician I mentioned at the beginning, he kind of emerges from this sequence and we follow him as he journeys through the woods to this cabin, again, completely isolated uh, from society, where he lives quietly for some time before burning the cabin down and the next thing we see him performing in a heavy metal concert. Uh, and actually, if you look online, you can find a Google Maps document that details his hike, which goes from Estonia to Oslo, Norway. So that's about 2,500 kilometers, which is a great deal of distance. What I admire about the movie is the way in which it depicts how an individual contains uh, very singular identities according to the environment that they find themselves in. So when he's in the commune, we see somebody who's very socially active. Then we find him in these extended scenes by himself in complete solitude that sort of is reminiscent of a sort of Henry David Thoreau lifestyle. That's followed by this very vigorous, enraged heavy metal concert where he's wearing this extreme makeup and sort of almost is conveying this like mystical energy about him. And I think a lot of people have kind of written this movie off uh, as sort of being this new age hippie nonsense, which I kind of feel is a misrepresentation because I don't think, first of all, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is that with regards to films is just because a film is depicting something doesn't necessarily mean it endorses the ideologies that present themselves from that um but to me i i felt like this was capturing how even for people who completely disconnect themselves from normal society and they remove themselves from the social trials that come from living in normal society they still desire certain amenities that can't be found in that alternative lifestyle so they they still have to re introduce themselves into normal society when they need that sort of uh, fix. So it's it's kind of like life can't be lived under a clear set of definitions and still feel fulfilling. And the movie ends on this really beautiful image where after Lowe has performed this concert, which is photographed in these really extended Steadicam takes, maneuvering a around each band member, uh, very intimately capturing sort of the the expression of anger that comes from playing this kind of music. But the film ends on this beautiful image where Lowe is leaving the concert hall and walks down the street into this underlit block. And uh, he just kind of disappears into the darkness as if to say because he has such this sort of mystical persona that maybe he never even existed or his lack of identity is more present than it has ever been. So I think it's just kind of a really interesting observation and depiction of an individual in, in search of some kind of place within very distinctive forms of society. And he's kind of unable to ever fully discover that. I would recommend it with caution because I do think it has some really rhythmic lulls where not much is happening. That's especially true in the initial commune portion of the film. 
But if you can get through that, I think the movie really erupts during the uh, heavy metal sequence, which is really entertaining to watch. Hey, Film Jive listeners. Courtney Small here from CinemaAccess.com. I'm going to share with you my top 10 films of 2014. Number 10, What We Do in the Shadows. This vampire mockumentary was one of the better comedies I saw last year. Number 9, Gone Girl, David Fincher at the height of his craft. Number 8, Leviathan. I'm actually pulling for this film to win the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film this year. Number 7, Force Majeure. Speaking of the Oscars, it's a shame that this gem of a film did not get nominated alongside Leviathan. Number 6, Grand Budapest Hotel. Wes Anderson doing what he does best. This film was a pure joy to watch. Number 5, Dear White People. This dark comedy instantly transported me back to my university days, unlike any other film did last year. Number 4, Nightcrawler. One of the few films I saw multiple times last year. Jake Gyllenhaal is fantastic. He's on one hell of an acting run of late. Number 3, The Overnighters. The most underrated and probably overlooked documentaries of last year. Do yourself a favor and seek this one out. Number two, Boyhood. Twelve years in the making and I loved every minute of it. And finally, my number one film for 2014 is Mommy. I'm a big fan of Xavier Dolan. And this is easily his most accomplished film to date. It's heart-wrenching and beautiful all at the same time. You gotta see Mommy. So my number nine is the... uh... The Babadook. It's a low-budget Australian film uh, about a single mother and her her son who are haunted by a strange creature called the the Babadook. Quite simply, it's a it's a scary horror film. Uh, there aren't too many of those around nowadays. It's very intimate and small scale. The characters are very believable in the the troubled. Son and the protective mother, very realistic. I thought some good performances there. And uh, the look of the film, it's always, it's got a very faded, uh, almost drained of colour uh, palette to it, quite grey. And um, the Babadook itself is, don't get much of a look at it, it's always kept in the shadows. Um, it's a pretty unusual and creepy creation. Um, but the most terrifying part of this film for me was the... Have you seen this one, Zach? I have, indeed. The book that they, they discover called The Babadook, and they go through the four or five pages. It's like a children's book with pop-up figures. The drawings in this book, for me, were the creepiest part of the film. I thought this book was terrifying. Have you purchased the book? You can buy you a can copy buy of the book now, yeah. Well, I certainly don't want to. Uh, <laughs> it's um, For me, that, that book was an incredible a prop, though. Whoever created that did a very good job. Um, so number nine for me is The Babadook. Uh, excellent horror film. I think it is my only horror film on my top ten. Yeah. So I um, would recommend that if you fancy a, a, a scary night in. What were your thoughts on The Babadook, Zach? I think I was a little more lukewarm on it. I think Jennifer Kent, who directed the movie, she utilizes the space of that house incredibly well. Mm. The mise-en-scene of that house is very menacing. It feels like it's very much inspired by the production design you would find in the German expressionist films of like the 20s and 30s. There's these single 
shots of the staircase by itself, I thought was like quite unnerving. Yeah. For me, and this is just a personal thing, but the Babadook being a allegory for her guilt, her depression, her anxiety, that kind of directness in horror films, I don't really respond to. I tend to prefer things that are a little more ambiguous. And to me, that became fairly clear fairly early on in the movie. So there was sort of a detachment from for me from the experience. But Essie Davis, who plays the lead, is absolutely brilliant in the movie. That kid is great, too, at just being a kid that I absolutely hate, which, you know, it's clearly intentional, but it also kind of affected my enjoyment of the movie just because I disliked him so much. I found him so unbearable to handle, but I also understand where the film's coming from in that way. Yeah, I think it's trying, she's, the director is trying to get across the, I suppose, the challenge, the difficulty of looking after a, a troubled child, how much of a toll that takes on the, the mother character. Uh, so my number nine is the Grand Budapest Hotel, directed by Wes Anderson, which I'll try to refrain from saying much for now, as I suspect we might be hearing about it later in the show. But I just think this is a really uh, endearing movie that kind of beneath all of the pre-war Europe uh, upholstery and the styling, the classic stylings of Wes Anderson is a... It's a testament to the cultural importance of art and the necessity to preserve art in whatever form it may take, whether it being the the art of being a concierge or the art of storytelling or even the very literal literal art of uh, the boy with apple painting that everyone is after. And I think with the framing devices, which initially I was not that keen on, I was a little frustrated by this sort of nested structure but i actually think in time I, I think it's meant to reflect how art is able to transcend time and allow people of different generations to connect with the generations that came before them which is very in in very many ways exactly what wes anderson is doing in making a film about a period in european history that he has no direct relationship to it's all based off of what he knows of the history, of his nostalgia for that time and that place. And and within the film, I mean, that's exactly what happens between Gustav and Zero. That's what happens with Tom Wilkinson's iteration of the author character and the young girl that reads his book at his gravesite. And I think in that way, this is maybe, at least for me, the most thematically rich of Wes Anderson's films because it isn't just being idiosyncratic for the sake of being idiosyncratic. It's actually about how art can illuminate others and help others through very oppressive times, you know, which in this case is the film is essentially this murder mystery is occurring at a time in Europe where fascism is on the rise and the end of Europe as it was understood during that period in history is ending. So it feels like the first film for me that Wes Anderson has made that only he could have made. I would say this film, and maybe perhaps Moonrise Kingdom as well, he's not just telling the same story with like a a more eclectic, expensive coat of varnish anymore. 
he's moved into a, a much more mature territory and has actually taken a very specific perspective within the subtext of this movie in particular that feels wholly like it's coming from his headspace. It's not he's not just paying homage to filmmakers that he he loved anymore. Um that that is really for me what makes this arguably his best film to this point. Mm. You like you liked the movie, right? Yes, yes, we will definitely be hearing from it again. Yeah. My number eight is The Theory of Everything, the film that seems to be the one that Eddie Redmayne is going to win the Oscar for, Best Actor. Um, So Theory of Everything, um, for those that don't know, is a story about the life of Professor Stephen Hawking and his wife, Jane Hawking, I think, can't quite remember the name, but she's played by... Jackie. No, it's not Jackie. (laughs) Played by Felicity Jones. The great thing about this story is that um, it's really about, uh, about the life of two very brave people dealing with some unusual challenges that life throws their way. Seeing a young Stephen Hawking was actually really interesting because I don't know about you, Zach, but for me, whenever I've thought of Stephen Hawking, he's always been in a wheelchair, not being able to speak. That has always been my image of Stephen Hawking. So to see his his life before that was really interesting and I think it emphasized the the power of his illness and overcoming it and and sle- seeing him slowly deteriorate is is heartbreaking but also getting to see him continue on beyond all doctors expectations to live a full life keep his sense of humor regardless of what's going around him is what is of the triumph in the film, I think. This could have been a really cheesy mess of a film, I think. You're actually one of the few that doesn't seem to think so. Well, that it's not a cheesy mess of a film. I don't, I don't think so. I think it does well at not going too far, not being too sweet and saccharine. And seeing the hardship that they have to go through is, is what changes that, I think. Seeing the reality of dealing with a life like this. Uh, Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne do a very good job. Eddie Redmayne in particular gets lost in the role. You can barely see him, I think. Um, that very rarely happens, I find, for me. But occasionally, actors do just disappear into that role and, and you, you barely see them anymore. And Eddie Redmayne does that here. And the amount of research and work he must have done to to get his physical performance just right is is very impressive. He's clearly done his done his homework in this role. I have a question because I haven't seen the film, seen this film either. I've read a lot of people consider this to be rather bland, and that comes from the fact that it chooses to focus on the relationship with his wife rather than really breach into the accomplishments of Stephen Hawking himself. So in that way, it ends up kind of feeling like a trivial drama. Yeah, I guess I just I'm just curious. 
why you think it overcomes that, why you think – because does the film doesn't really get into what he accomplishes, right? You do see him progress at Oxford, and um, there are a few scenes of him presenting his, his theories to um, – to, to cows, to boxes. academics, <laughs> he does. He does uh, have. He has a few moments in his career, and you see where he's progressing. But it is all about his. The the focus is his relationship with his family, his wife. Um, and for me personally, I'm not too interested in Stephen Hawking's career and his theories and his work. Whilst it's impressive, and I I know some basics about it, I think if you did get into any sort of level of detail, you'd probably be losing a lot of the audience anyway in terms of understanding it. It's pretty complicated stuff. For me, it was more about... Who did he sleep with? Not who he slept with, but more about his life, um, how he goes about his daily life and, and his relationships and, and dealing with his illness. That, for me, was more compelling than learning about his career. Um, and, you know, his career is touched upon. But th- this film is based on... Uh, a book written by his wife, not by Stephen Hawking. So I can see why she was a big part of the story and, and, and you know, co-lead in this film. It's not just the, the Stephen Hawking story. It's about his wife as well. Uh, my number eight is a 47-minute uh, silent 16-millimeter film entitled Three Landscapes, directed by Peter Hutton. As the title hints, this is a kind of a, a cinematic triptych landscape film that portrays uh, three separate landscapes, uh, an industrial parkway in Detroit, Michigan, some kind of farming community along the Hudson River Valley in New York, and uh, the salt mines in Ethiopia. Uh, the camera is entirely static, and uh, there are fewer than 50 individual shots. Uh, now, speaking... For myself, I personally have a keen interest in the nature of landscapes and how human beings interact with their landscapes and also how they enact change upon a landscape. Uh, And I would say this movie kind of ends up becoming less of a study in landscape and more so a study in how human beings physically move through their environments. And it is... A slow film. It's certainly not for everyone. But I, I think within these three sort of chapters, there are uh, several moments or images that really stand out to me as being uh, distinctive and really compelling. Uh, the first one being in Ethiopia, when the, the, where there are these mine workers, they've loaded the camels with uh, the salt, I guess you, you could call them pallets. Uh, anyway, and they're traveling off into the horizon, and because of the extreme heat in this environment, the further they travel away from the camera, the more they look like they are physically melting. Uh, I mean, it, it's an image that we are probably all somewhat familiar with to some degree, uh, but because Peter Hutton sits on these images for such an extended period of time, they become this form of hypnotism. They become unnerving. It really gives you um, an unsettling quality, but it also gives you a great deal of respect for the people who have to endure and work in that environment. The second sequence is during the Hudson River Valley Act. One shot in particular 
uh, you see these workers mowing some kind of field, and they're using those um, those like manual real push mowers. And above them, there are these large white puffy clouds against the blue sky, and the clouds are moving faster than the workers are across this plane. And it's not because the workers aren't working. It's just uh, it's a matter of distance. It's a matter of the repetition of the work that they're doing. The movement of these people almost becomes completely suspended. And, you know, again, I I think movies like this that aren't narrative-based or story-driven, even though I think these individual moments kind of tell their own story, it becomes a very sort of instinctual thing where I think maybe that those kinds of images are not all that fascinating to most people, but to me, they're just something that there's something really beautiful about a film that allows you to observe time, observe landscape, physical moment movement in such a sort of detailed form. It almost actually, because it's so rare, it almost feels like it's something out of like a science fiction movie. Um, which is especially true in the, uh, in the last, sort of image I wanted to mention, which is in Detroit, where there is this engineer and he's climbing up the arch, one of the arches of the Ambassador Bridge in Detroit. And again, it's like, it's very slow. He's moving very slowly along this arch. But what's interesting about the way that it's framed is that because of the camera position, you never see the ground. So it's just these two bridge arches in the middle of the frame going from left, you know, they start in the lower third of the frame and they go up past the, the upper third of the frame. And it looks like this guy is just ascending into the sky, like on this floating staircase. And it's incredibly surreal. And the, the other thing is he chooses to shoot this image in black and white. So it, he becomes a complete silhouette. So it's this almost like cartoon, this small speck slowly moving across the screen, just completely dwarfed by the sky. Um, it's it's absolutely like breathtaking image. It was so jarring to me at one point early on, I started to feel like uh, like Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. It felt like the sky was spinning and I was like falling out of my seat. Anyway, so I think it's a, a really fascinating film that I don't know everyone, don't know that everyone will have the patience for, but I think it... Uh, it really captures the the scope of these lamps, landscapes. It captures uh, the way people move through these landscapes. It captures the vulnerability of human beings in this landscape. I mean, that guy on that that arch, you can really sense the vulnerability of somebody being that high up, and how uh, frightening that must must be. But it also captures um, human labor in a really uh, mesmerizing fashion. Interestingly, you were talking about time, and that kind of ties into my number seven, which is Richard Linklater's uh, fascinating experiment, Boyhood. Now, some people are are rating this film very highly. Some people seem to to find it a bit dull. It seems to be a bit divisive. For me, it falls somewhere in the middle in that I, I do think it's an incredible experiment of filmmaking and uh, clearly takes a lot of commitment from a director and quite a lot of creativity. In terms of a film experience, I think it's it's a good one, but doesn't quite measure up to the the enormity of arranging something like this, producing something like this. It's all about growing up, how quickly 
time flies. As Ferris Bueller would say, life goes pretty quickly. You need to make sure you take a moment to enjoy it, look around, or before you know it, it might be gone. I think that is kind of the message behind Boyhood, in that we see this this time, uh, I'm not sure exactly how long, I think it's, is it 12 years, Zach, do you know? Yes. 12 years, go by in, in two and a bit hours. Uh, we, we're with a boy called Mason, we see him go from, I suppose, about eight to ten years old, up to being a teenager, heading off to college, uh, becoming a young adult. I believe he's six. Six, is that? Oh, wow, six or okay. seven. Yeah. To becoming a 17, 18-year-old. And we see that time fly by, and I think it's well summed up at the end when he goes off to college, his mother's very upset, and it sort of emphasizes how quickly these moments in his life, birthdays, moving house several times, have all passed quickly. And I think it's something a lot of people can relate to. In the, when you look back, time does go pretty quickly. Um, we see Mason go from quite a quiet character when he's a child and uh, absorbing a lot of what's going on around him. He's usually not the focus, not the attention of... The camera is not paying attention to him as much as what's going on around him. When he becomes an adult, he's more opinionated, or rather a teenager. He's more opinionated. He's He has the focus. He's grown, and um, we've seen that happen. And it's fascinating to see it happen to a real character over that time. Uh, Patricia Arquette is... Um, and, and Ethan Hawke, I think, are, are both excellent in their roles as the parents of, of Mason. And um, overall, I think it's a very brave risk from someone like Linklater to dedicate his time to this, something that I'm sure many times during those 12 years he wondered, is it worth it? Am, you know, is it worth continuing with, with this? And uh, I think in the end it's paid off for him, and I think it's a, it is an excellent and enjoyable and unique film. Uh, have you seen Boyhood, Zach? I think you, I'm guessing you have. Uh, yes. Yeah. I really appreciate what Richard Linklater did with the movie. I'll, I'll admit that the actual content, the observing of his progression, is not something that necessarily really struck a chord with me personally. But um, what I think is so amazing about this film is is not just how it, one, it's how it historically records basically the current century in the United States, whether that be in terms of music or politics. There's the sequence that involves, I believe, when Bush is running for a second term, there's sequences discussing the Iraq war. So it, it in a way it allows you to reflect on, you know, the last twelve to fifteen years of America. Uh but I'm also just amazed by its normality which is why I'm kind of surprised to some degree that it's taken off and become this juggernaut on the award circuit and with critics. And, you know, it, it doesn't have a visual style that's incredibly unique or inspired. It's a very sort of a realist approach where the camera's just kind of living in the moment. But I, but I think what was most interesting about the film is the way that it transitions in time through the edit. I really admire that Linklater doesn't attempt to telegraph or establish the passage of time. You have to accrue the details in a scene and then realize, oh, we've moved on to the next year. And I think maybe a lesser filmmaker might use title cards or some kind of visual motif or cue to keep the audience aware of 
Here is Mason from 7 to 8. Here is Mason from 8 to 9. Here is Mason from 9 to 10. That doesn't happen here. You kind of uh, instinctually pick up on it as the movie continues. Uh, My number 7 is Stranger by the Lake, directed by Elaine Giraudie. This is a film set along a summer lake where men go and lay out on the beach completely nude and then they wander off into the nearby woods for sex. It's a cruising beach in France. And in this film, we follow a character named Franck who uh, one evening witnesses a man with this sort of porno mustache named Michel drown his lover in the lake. However, before this, it is also established that Franck is deeply attracted to Michel. Um, therefore, uh, the, the film takes place over the course of 10 days. So the murder is, I believe, at the end of the second day. So, so therefore, by the fourth day, Franck and Michelle have sex. So Franck kind of forgoes telling the police that Michelle is the killer and forgoes the potential danger in associating himself with Michelle. It's also during these 10 days we observe um, Franck as he strikes up this platonic friendship with a lonely man named Henry who sits on the beach but never takes his clothes off and never goes into the woods for sex. Of course, as the movie continues, there's the police investigation. uh, There's a lot of suspense and tension that begins to mount. And uh, the movie, you know, it's a deconstruction about the fine line between love and lust and the the dangerous consequences that can result from both. I I think I've read a lot of pieces on it that clearly define the relationship between Franck and Michelle as being pure lust, and I don't know that it is that simple. Now, it's very acutely designed. Uh, It's photographed very rigorously, largely composed in these... um, these extended takes, there's very minimal cutting. And I don't know that I said this, but the entire film takes place on the beach. So one of the ways that the movie establishes the procession of days is, I think this doesn't change until the ninth day, every new day begins with the same exact establishing shot of Frank parking his car at the lake's parking lot. So the film's repetition becomes key later when it sort of morphs into this kind of Hitchcockian thriller because the film has familiarized you with the routine of the beach events that it's very easy for you to recognize when there is a change, and that's usually done in a visual cue. I think with a lot of films that I really responded to this year, something that this shares is the immersion of the viewer into the film's environment. Uh, Because of that repetition, you could almost imagine how this geographically would appear on a map because you very subtly become aware of where the parking lot is in relationship to the the path leading to the beach in relationship to the beach and the beeps the beach's relationship to the woods where everyone goes to have sex it takes a very natural open space and encloses it so the film slowly, solely exists within the universe of this beach and woods. Uh, it's wonderfully directed, uh, not in just how it uses the camera and the space, but sound. There's, there isn't any score during the film. Everything is 
a very natural, organic soundscape. You hear the wind against the trees, the water, the sound of feet walking along the rocky beach. It's a very stripped-down sort of piece of storytelling that just lets the events play out in their own terms. It almost reminded me of kind of having this ethnographic bent to it, which I really enjoyed, is just observing the uh, the system and the boundaries that exist within a gay cruising beach. The entire first act of the film is almost completely dedicated to sort of easing the viewer into the beach's system, how everything works, the routines, how men attract each other, how one decides to sleep with who, how one doesn't. Everything's done with these very nonverbal, seductive gazes. Uh, and it's it's completely fascinating to watch. So it has that level of, of realism to it, but it also f- still feels very uh, dreamlike. The actual, there's an incredible four-minute take that captures the drowning sequence and then the killer swimming to shore, redressing and walking off. It's all a single take. Um, And I think that scene alone kind of perfectly encapsulates how well-crafted the film is. Hi, this is Robert Reinecke from Where the Long Tail Ends and the Still Watching the Skies podcast. Zach asked me to contribute a list. I'm sure my list is not too different than the usual suspects that you've heard about or you will be hearing about on this podcast. I count among my favorites this year, Whiplash, Under the Skin, Boyhood, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Snowpiercer, Force Majeure, and I'm sure there's many that are on my list of shame that are, are terrific. Beyond those, I'd like to call your attention to the little scene Indian film, The Lunchbox, which is one of my favorites of the year that hasn't really been talked about. The Lunchbox tells the story of an Indian housewife trying to re-spark her marriage by making her husband fantastic lunches which are shipped to her husband through the Indian lunchbox system. Through an unlikely mistake in the system, her lunches end up with a whittler nearing retirement played by the great Irfan Khan. Soon, the two end up having an affair of letters using the lunchbox system as a vehicle for carrying the letters between the two. As they pour out their innermost thoughts and feelings, they take stock of their lives. It's an adult romance in a world that's short on adult romances, If that's not enough, it's a film to excite all the senses, focusing on the colors, textures, and sound of India, and doing its best to create an impression of the tastes and aromas of some great-looking food. If film is a medium for transport, The Lunchbox is a great example of taking you to a world that's different yet has universal connections. It's an underseen film, but I think it's a film that people will get a lot of enjoyment out of if they give it a chance. Thanks for having me on. Have a great 2015. Right, so my number six is The Guest, which is um, the latest film from Adam Wingard, starring Dan Stevens. Adam Wingard's uh, known for the horror film from a year or two ago called You're Next, uh, a pleasantly surprising horror film that I really enjoyed, uh, which was able to point and laugh at itself, but also scare you as well. Um, Dan Stevens plays a character called David in this film, who is a, an ex uh, army soldier who comes to see a family who are grieving following the loss of their their son during during a military action. Uh, he comes to speak to the family after promising to do so to their to their dead son. And uh, David seems like a very pleasant uh, pleasant guy. He's polite, but we soon learn that there's something much more uh, much more interesting going on, and uh, the motives of David really being there become apparent. I'm going to say it now that I think Dan Stevens 
is uh, going to be the next James Bond. I think he has that charisma, has that look, and could quite easily be the choice uh, after Daniel Craig is done. This film felt a bit like uh, Drive meets a 1980s B-movie in, in an action sense. Dan Stevens is a compelling um, um, presence on the screen. He's very interesting to watch. And this film goes from being a mystery into a horror film and finishes off with a crazy third act. Um, and Adam Wingard creates a, a great atmosphere, sort of oozing confidence and style. And there's a well-judged uh, techno music score put into this film, which gave it a bit of a John Carpenter feel at times. It's actually all soundtrack. Oh, it's all soundtrack, is it? Yeah. Well, good choice of soundtrack. So for me, it was uh, a very enjoyable film. Good value for, for the entertainment. It's a bit goofy. It's a bit silly at points. Um, but it's uh, I found it very enjoyable. Um, and Adam Wingard is becoming a director that uh, I'm really enjoying his work on a consistent basis now. That's two for two. And uh, I'll be keeping an eye on, on his future projects. This is one of those cases where you and I had like the complete opposite reaction to a movie. Oh, yeah? And why was that? I'll be brief about it, but The Guest to me is an example of the type of movie that 15 years ago would never exist because we weren't at this point where uh, filmmakers hadn't fully embraced the sort of postmodernist idea of making purely sort of pastiche films where it's just about somebody imitating the work of other filmmakers that they grew up loving. I think a lot of horror cinema has purely become pastiche. And I think, you know, you mentioned John Carpenter. To me, the guess is just a really sad attempt at evoking that kind of action film, right down to that that synth-driven soundtrack. And at least the the narrative conceit of attempting to make some kind of political statement about post-war aggression with Dan Stevens's character being an Iraq war veteran, uh, which really, to me, it has no bearing on the rest of the movie after about the first 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, it's just something that feels completely insincere to me. Uh, and I feel like perhaps it's intentional, but I don't really... I don't go to movies to watch filmmakers wink their eye at me. To me, like, all of Dan Stevens' performance is just this big, like, eye wink. And I just don't, I don't, in terms of it being a genre film, I don't, I don't understand what's compelling about it visually. One of the most frustrating things for me was that third act, I think it's a very sloppy chase movie, but it comes to that high school, and you have this incredible set in this Halloween maze and it doesn't even use it. It doesn't integrate the the Halloween maze into the actual action of that set piece. We saw body parts and we saw... What body parts? I'm not talking about was... what's in the maze. I'm talking about how the action, the fight between, say, Lance Reddick and Dan Stevens and also the kids, how that's integrated and choreographed around this maze. It seems like this obvious thing, like, oh my god, here's this maze. You're going to do something really interesting with this. Don't they go into the Hall of Mirrors and have a fight in there with, with a knife? 
Yeah, but it's like, but the problem is it's so sloppy, like the execution is so sloppy and it's photographed in this incredibly, like in these tight shots that don't even really utilize like the deception of the reflections at all. Like I just, but I'm talking about this maze is, there's no high school on in America that has the budget to design a maze like that. And then it designs I did think it. that was strange. I thought maybe that's an American tradition. I don't know. But <laughs> no. it seemed it seemed bizarre to go through this giant maze to get to uh into the sort of main hall. But I yeah, I mean that was just a silly part of the film I thought they added for effect. I don't I mean, is this something that has have you ever come across something like this? So Halloween's not as big a thing over here. But I know it's a big thing in America. And have you ever heard of something like this? A, a maze, maze going like into this? a hall? Yeah. Well, like, I mean, you have, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of haunted houses and mazes and that people design during the season that you go and pay and you can go through. I mean, that's a pretty common tradition that's kind of all over the place. So is that out of the question that a, a school could arrange something like that? Well, that's a pretty expansive like there are portions of that maze that look like something out of like 2001 a space odyssey like it's a little extreme and yeah, I, yeah. and to me the production design being so pronounced in that way i was just i i, I didn't to me that the ends didn't justify the means in where the movie goes once that's introduced it doesn't really utilize it as like some kind of way in that set piece um i wonder because you Brits, you've got this. You have this weird obsession with Dan Stevens. I, do well, I do you just have that. like I a mean, penis crush on him? Is that why this is here? Like, well, he's become popular. He's become popular through Downton Abbey, and uh, now uh, he hasn't done much uh, in terms of films so far. As I mean, he's done this, and I think he did a film with Liam Neeson last year. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, I haven't seen anything else with him in it. I, no, I'm still to be impressed by Dan Stevens. Um, until this film, I think he's now shown a bit more versatility than you know your standard period British drama. Um, and I'm I'm interested to see him in more stuff. I think he's still got a long way to go, but uh, I thought he was good in this. I mean, you're you're a few years older than me, and maybe there's that nostalgia of growing up with 80s action movies and it being a reflection of that, but just none of that is is present for me. This felt like, and actually, funny enough, when I saw the film, uh, I, I went to see it on a during an afternoon. I was in another city, and I didn't have anything to do for a few hours, and I didn't really know that much about the film. I just paid, and I went to see it. And... Uh, Maybe this is also inherently why maybe I didn't like the movie, but the there was just these huge pockets of meatheads in this movie, and we're just absolutely devouring this. <laughs> and I can't, I guess I can't separate that relationship, and that I, this just feels like a meathead movie to me. I don't know, it's just dumb, and feel like I mean, I, I was intrigued for a while. But by the time, and it's not Lance Reddick's fault, but once that whole element of the plot enters, I thought the movie just became incredibly disinteresting. And I think, like, the chase sequences are just not, they're just, they feel very sloppy to me. Well, for me, it, I, I won't deny it's it's a bit silly. And I it probably does come under something like a guilty pleasure. But in terms of, you compare this to things like The Expendables, 
and and those Fast and Furious films and any Jason Statham action film, they're all pretty dull to me. For me, this has got a lot more style and spikiness to it than than those dull Fair Expendables yeah. and and Die Hard re, you know sequels they've been doing. My number six is the documentary Monica Mana, directed by Stephanie Spray and Pacho Velez. Uh, this is a film that consists of eleven total shots, each ten minutes in length. Uh, inside a cable car in Nepal that's ascending and descending along this mountain uh, where different individuals, and in one particular case, uh, a cable car of goats, are making their journey up the mountain to worship at the shrine of, of their god, Manakamana. And the easiest way I can describe this movie is it's just, it's an ode to existence. Uh it's just a movie that revels in observing human behavior in this very in- intimate, uninterrupted um, setting. And I think, you know, some of the cable car rides are definitely more interesting than others. For example, there's this wonderful, wonderful scene between um, a woman and her mother, and they're riding up this car, and they're eating ice cream cars, uh, ice cream cars, ice cream bars, and it's pretty clear that the mother has never had ice cream before in her life. So she's really struggling to eat the ice cream and it's melting all over her arms and she's trying to catch it with her mouth and she doesn't have anything to wipe herself with and it's getting all sticky. And I don't know, for me, there's just something really like wonderful about getting to observe that. Um, you know, this is produced uh, through the Harvard uh, Sensory Ethnography Lab, which has done movies like the, the Leviathan, the documentary last year, and Sweetgrass, and uh, which I love both those films. But often with these kinds of movies, there's some kind of larger political or social statement being made, and there's definitely a religious context to this film. Uh, but I think the the kind of spirituality to it is just kind of simply born out of uh, the purity of the filmmaking. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's a very simple film. Again, it's slow. It's not going to be for everyone. Uh, but I just think it's, uh, really beautiful. I can't stop this feeling deep inside of me. Girl, you just don't realize what you do to me when you hold me in your arms so tight you let me know everything's all right My number five pick is Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And this was a film that I must admit, going into, I was fairly sceptical about. It's funny to look back on that now. But it was a a big gamble by Marvel, taking characters no one had ever heard of from very obscure comic background, a talking tree, a talking raccoon, setting it in space. But this was a gamble that really paid off. It was a very, very funny film, a um, 
one of the best comedies of the years of the year. It was weird. It was uh, exciting. It was also charming. It has an off the wall soundtrack. Uh, it's got a good ensemble cast. Its one weakness is perhaps that the villain villains in, of the piece are a bit basic and lack any real depth or, or gravitas. But this is effectively Marvel's version of Star Wars and. They've done a fantastic job here. It's really given me confidence in that Marvel Cinematic Universe in that I now feel I can turn up to anything that they produce and I will probably enjoy it. Um, this may well be one of the best ones they have done in their uh, group of films. So Guardians of the Galaxy was an absolute triumph, a big gamble that paid off for Marvel and they are moving from strength to strength with their films and I think this is really garnered a lot of confidence from cinema goers due to the enjoyment they had from this film so for number five my pick is guardians of the galaxy i would say you're kind of becoming a big james gunn fan aren't you because i remember super being a movie that was in your top 10 a couple years ago yes i've also seen slytherin quite like that too have you seen uh tromeo and juliet no is that quite an old one yeah that was when he was at troma studios that was the first screenplay he ever wrote. You might want to give that a look. Okay, I will. Because, yes, I am. I do seem to like a lot of his his stuff. My number five is the uh, French film Bird People, directed by Pascal Ferrand, which is a movie I don't really want to say much about because I really want people, encourage people to seek it out. I know it's currently available on Netflix Instant. And... It's a film told in two separate chapters. Chapter one is titled Gary, which follows an American businessman uh, who decides during this significant business deal between his company and a company in Dubai that he's supposed to travel to the following day to miss his flight, quit his job, divorce his wife, and stay in Paris. Chapter two is uh, titled Audrey, and it follows a young woman who works as a maid at the same airport hotel that Gary is staying at and they the two don't come in contact with one another throughout the film but Audrey we see lives a fairly monotonous life school work home same same thing uh she's frequently alone and uh she isn't treated with much respect by the manager at the hotel and uh she also undergoes an experience of liberation that I do not want to spoil because it's absolutely one of the most thrilling and genuinely surprising reveals in a film that I've seen in a very long time. So yeah, it's basically two tales of personal liberation. In the case of Gary, it's a clean break from the life that he's been living. In the case of Audrey, it's sort of this fanciful a uh, moment and a newfound perspective on the world. Um, but it's hard because I'm trying to talk around a bunch of things, but it, it does contain some of the best special effects work I've ever seen in a movie. If only because it blends in, uh, it, it's so transparent to the the very real sort of setting and mundane setting of this uh, airport hotel. There's also this incredible like 25 minutes sequence between Gary and his wife in a Skype video conversation where he's basically telling her what's going on. They're getting divorced. What do I say to the kids? That sort of thing. 
and and that is completely convincing. But it takes a film, it's a film that takes subject matter that in most cases would be a very uh, universal play on these anxieties that we all face every day re- regarding the pattern lifestyles that we sometimes fall prisoner to. And it takes that and it does something wholly unconventional with it. My number four is Whiplash, the uh, story of a young, aspiring jazz Whipping drummer. Whipping boy. Whipping boy. Jazz drummer. Uh, trying to succeed and become become a great jazz drummer. Uh, to do so, he's at a uh, a music school, and he, he joins one of the leading jazz bands there, which is conducted and led by J.K. Simmons' character. We soon learn... J.K. Simmons' character is, um, he is a bit of a bully. He victimizes our, our main character, played by Miles Teller. He reminds me of you in many ways. Why is that? Well, you're a bit of a bully. Oh, a bully. I, I also am a drummer, you know, I, I play the drums. Are you still a drummer? I think we've had this uh, conversation, because I played drums until I was about 11. Yeah. And then somebody stole my drum kit. That's a whole oh. traumatic story, but... Uh, oh, dear. That's not very nice. If you put me in front of a drum kit, I can still still play. I can get a rhythm going. I certainly don't have lessons or play much anymore, but, you know, I know the basics. You're better than this guy, right? <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Um, may, may, maybe that's one of the reasons I, I connected with this film. But uh, what I think is the core idea of this film is the lengths that someone will go to to succeed, the, the drive that they have. And I think um, whilst this film is about drumming, it can, can it can relate to, a lot of people can relate to it in terms of trying to impress your, your boss, your manager, or you know, whoever it is to get ahead in life, get that promotion, get whatever it is you're trying to achieve. In this case, Miles Teller, it seems, will do anything. His ambition is, is endless, and he will he will do anything to get what he wants, which I think makes him a quite unlikable character. We see him dismo- not care about people in his life, um, show a bit of an arrogance, because all he cares about is achieving uh, greatness with his drums. He is honest, though. I he mean, is at honest least about is it. honest about it. It's a tricky role, and I think Miles Teller does get it right here. But it's the ferocious performance of J.K. Simmons, who's a great presence in this film. Amazing to watch in that you just don't know what he's going to do next. Will he compliment Miles Teller? Will he bully him, throw something at him? He's very volatile, and um, it's a really interesting character to watch. And you see where he is coming from at points. As you learn a bit more about him, he tells us about how great players are made, where they come from their training and um, you understand what he's trying to do is make someone a great a master of their instrument and to do that they need to be pushed if you le- if you compliment them too much it doesn't do anything if you provide some criticism something negative there's that drive that comes from them to prove that person wrong and take them into take them above and beyond um, so I thought that was Really interesting to see more about that. There's a slight sadomasochistic desire almost from Miles Teller to have that same sort of treatment to try and get to that level. 
as Fifty Shades of Grey is coming out in the cinemas, uh, I would say this is probably a, a much better version. J.K. Simmons is sexy. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. He's not quite Mister Grey, you know. But um, it's full of adrenaline in this film. It's a stunning film. Two brilliant performances. Rather simple, rather compact film. But um, I really loved it. Really enjoyed it. And that's why it comes in at my number four for Whiplash. So I think Whiplash is actually a really interesting movie. Uh, I wonder, I sort of have um, maybe like an ethical hang-up with it to some degree. And it's in relationship to the, you know, the climactic ending. And, you know, there's that scene where J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller are in that nightclub. And he says to Miles Teller, the worst thing you could ever say to someone is good job or something like that. Yeah. And in a way, I kind of feel like by the end of the movie, it enforces that ideology that the ending of the film almost rightly justifies everything that J.K. Simmons did to Miles Teller throughout the film. That is, yeah. I think it may, it puts it out there for the audience to make up their mind. I mean, I think it makes it an incredibly much more interesting movie that it does that than what it would be if it didn't. Yeah. But I guess I just, I don't know that I, ne- I don't necessarily agree that in order to achieve greatness, one has to suffer. I think for some people that has happened and that's proven to be the case, but I don't know that that is like a, a, a methodology that should be applied to anyone. And I know, like, the movie, it's a very specific situation. It's not like some general, like, universal statement about the condition of creating art. But I just, there's something about the ending of the movie that's a little, like, unsettling for me. My number four is actually a film from 1997. Uh, but it didn't receive its first U.S. US theatrical release until 2014. And that is a little movie entitled Level 5 directed by the late Chris Marker. Uh, This is a sort of quasi-science fiction, semi-fictional documentary essay film that explores the limits of technology and how technology manipulates and distorts information. In this particular case, it's relating to the the subject of history, both a personal history and uh, more general world history. So the basic narrative is the film follows this female computer programmer who has been tasked with creating a computer game which simulates the Battle of Okinawa, which for those who are unfamiliar is considered to be one of the the more pivotal battles in Japan during World War II, which some say directly inspired the bombings of Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki. Uh, But it's also infamous... Um, and this is investigated during the film. It's infamous for the uh, the fact that the Imperial Japanese Army essentially brainwashed the civilians of this island to commit mass suicide when it appeared the battle was lost. So that ended up resulting in somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 dead civilians, some of which did die during the battle, but the majority of that figure, as I understand, is from mass suicides. So 
the film is intercut between this sort of investigation into Okinawa. It's interviewing a priest who was there when he was a young man who actually did kill members of his own family. There's also intercut with these video diaries that the female computer programmer is recording, which is kind of portraying her mental deterioration and sort of moral apprehension the more and more she discovers data regarding these mass suicides. She begins to question her own humanity. And one of the most tragic ways that that's illustrated is um, in the sequence where we see her talking to this toy parrot as if it's a, a, a you know a living, breathing thing. Uh, and that's juxtaposed against uh, images from John Huston's World War II documentary, The Let There Be Light, which uh, it specifically focuses on a scene where a soldier has to undergo uh, hypnotism in order to remember who he is in the battle that he just was a part of. So there's a lot to unpack, and a lot of the movie kind of comes down to these sort of philosophical ruminations. It's very much a movie that's thinking out loud as it continues, and it's not something that's clearly defined. It's presenting a lot of ideas to the viewer all at once, and I'm sure kind of anything that I would say would maybe be underselling it. But it's it's interesting as sort of a a, a view into technology because seeing this nearly 20 years after it was made, you know, obviously the technology is is not it's not nearly as capable as what exists now, but there are elements of things presented here, ideas here for computer programs that clearly could be linked to what would later become say like the online chat room of sorts. And in a way, without spoiling the ending, I think Chris Marker kind of makes a, a prediction of how and why the age of data and this technology boom, how and why it will die. So it's kind of a, there's a prophetic element to that. Um, there's that. And then one other thing that was really profound for me while watching this was there's a segment of the film where he's photographing the Okinawa memorial site and you see these floods of tourists taking pictures, you know, posing together, being, you know, kind of happily inquisitive as if they don't realize the tragedy that happened here or it's not something they fully comprehend. And that becomes kind of very overwhelming for me, at least for me because it's it reveals something about how maybe technology has caused a greater rift in our ability to understand historical events and how we remember certain things. You know, there's this this idea that we consume historical Im information and images now because of computers and other forms of technology, and it and it's become so so far less impersonal or so far it's become more impersonal because we're doing it through this computer screen therefore the the reality of those events is somewhat lost to us so it's a movie that encourages a lot of thought um it's but it's also very intimately designed and i think the final statement of the movie that kind of comes from tragedy but enforces this idea that i would like to think that 
technology's ever never going to fully be able to convey the the complexity of humanity. Uh, there will always kind of be this distance. We'll always need sort of this very human interaction and very almost primal, you know, human tools to learn and discover things. It won't all be filtered through a computer screen. But I kind of also kind of now seeing this film in this context of 2014, I fear that, you know, people are using technology as a way to replace humanity even if it doesn't necessarily achieve the same thing. So it's a really remarkable piece of work, which is something that people know who Chris Marker is and have seen his films. That's basically to be expected. Hello, film drivers. Hope you're having a wonderful new year. And I'm here to talk about my favorite film of the year, which was Xavier Dolan's Mommy. My name is Thomas Wishloff, and I'm from the Genre Conversation and Sunset Rising Productions. Um, anyways, the reason Mommy was the best film of the year for me was because um, I honestly felt that it was a cinema-changing experience. The way that film is shot, for those who don't know, is in a one-to-one aspect ratio, so a perfect square in the middle of the screen. And I was blown away. I honestly felt like the only thing I could compare it to would be watching La Aventura at Cannes in 61 or Citizen Kane in theaters in 1941. Um, and basically coming to the realization that this is going to change the way people look at movies and the way movies are shot. And I was totally amazed by that. Um, it was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had at a theater. And I saw this on a Monday afternoon, not a soul in the theater, and it was amazing. Um, and I'm uh, totally on board for Xavier Dolan as a filmmaker. I think he is great. Last thing I want to plug, I guess, is my underrated film of the year, which I'm going to go with Inherent Vice for. Uh, I, I don't really get this movie, but I love it. I think Inherent Vice is super cool. It's really fun. I basically just turned my brain off, stopped trying to follow the plot, and uh, watched the movie and enjoyed the fact that the visuals are amazing and gorgeous and that Anderson is one of the greatest visual filmmakers of all time. But either way, uh, I hope you're all having a wonderful new year, wonderful 2015, and keep on jiving. Now we're moving to level three. Yes, my number three, Nightcrawler, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. This is the uh, X-Men spinoff, correct? Yes, yes. The, no Alan, Alan Cumming, is it? Cummings. Yeah, no Alan That's Cummings in this one. Alan, come into me. <laughs> Um, so this is a film uh, about a an ambitious, another ambitious young man, and how far will you go to be successful? Jake Gyllenhaal plays a rather unusual character who is um, who discovers that there is an industry of the media where cameramen are out looking for accidents, uh, crimes, anything that the news might want to report the following morning. Jay Gyllenhaal is out there prowling around L.A. during the early hours, uh, listening to police radio scanners, trying to uh, come across crimes, gruesome accidents, before the police and the you know, emergency services get there. So he can film it, sell it to a TV uh, company, and they'll put it on the morning news um, and, and report it. Gyllenhaal uh, really is the, the core of this film. Um, Everyone else around him is fine. You know, I think it's Rene Russo, Reese Ahmed. They're, they're interesting characters, but 
Gyllenhaal is is an incredible presence in this film as this sort of educated character. He uses a lot of corporate language to give a sense of sophistication and maturity to him, and he's he's polite and but underneath, and you only get a few moments where you really see it, but he is a intense. There's, a, there's sort of an intense darkness and maybe even a monster underneath that that calm and professional lair to him. He's a fiercely driven man. There's no line that he won't cross to to succeed. Uh, it's it's a film that's got sort of, sort of a, a wit to it. It's quite a dark wit, but it, there there is some some dark humour in there. And I I also really appreciated the cinematography of it. Seeing this sort of empty, lonely LA at night, and uh, just learning a bit more about this brutal world of of chasing these sort of stories um, was quite interesting. It was all quite new to me. I wasn't very aware of it, and to to learn about it was really interesting. It's it's sort of oozing and dripping in style. This film and Gyllenhaal just gives, I think, one of if not the best performance I've ever seen him give. Big oozing pimple. Yeah, it's a big oozing pimple of style. No, I quite, li- I quite like cry- Nightcrawler. Yeah, you were talking about that sort of uh, the corporate jargon. I think that's for me. Uh, that's what's most interesting about his character is how he uses the essentially the language of of capitalism as a way to uh, manipulate. Rene Russo? The people around him. Well, Rene Russo, I think actually that culminates most in his relationship with uh, Rick, the Riz Ahmed character. Yeah. There's that sequence about getting a raise or something. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. But yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think you know, how he... Ambitions and career development and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's he sees the world through the perspective of, of an enterprise rather than an individual. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in that way, his rise is kind of like the the entrepreneur becoming the executive of oil company or something and just completely consumed by. I would say I don't know if it's so much as greed as ambition, but, mm. um, yeah, it's a really uh, interesting movie. Yeah, I don't I don't feel like with him it's all about the money. You know, it's more about the status and the success. Than, than than just having that money, I think. And yeah, so I, th- I thought it was fascinating. Really great film. Moving on, my number three is Peter Strickland's relationship drama, The Duke of Burgundy, which details uh, the relationship between two women, Cynthia and Evelyn, who live in this uh, manor house within the idyllic countryside. It's in a very mysterious universe where men do not exist at all. It is a film solely populated by women. Cynthia and Evelyn are these two women who are are two women who are in a masochistic relationship. Uh, and the film is an investigation into how does the individual in that relationship who doesn't have submissive de- desires how do they how do they work with their partner who does have those desires? If you actually remove kind of the the sadomasochistic uh, window dressing it's a film about the compromises that people make within a relationship and how far does one partner compromise for the satisfaction of the other before they're no longer themselves 
which I that's not something restricted to these kinds of relationships. I think that's a ver- universal question. And that's really what allows the movie to become more than just a, this sort of a genre piece that's paying homage to European films of the 70s by people like Jess Franco and, and Jean Roland, who are certainly influences on the visual aesthetics. But the direction is, is very meticulous and finely detailed. It's not a chaotic film in the way that those films were, uh, which is maybe could be a, a bit disappointing for people walking into this and in, in expecting to be titillated because it's it's far less interested in being sexy but much more caught up in the sort of mundane minutia of having to sustain this sort of relationship where someone is the dominant uh, force and the other is the submissive force. Um, so it gets really caught up in that routine, which could be you know, a subtext for the kind of routine that sets in between any kind of couple that's been together for a long period of time. I don't want to say a lot about the movie because I don't I don't think it really had its true North American release until uh, mid-January 2015. Uh, so I don't really want to get too, too p- specific, but it's gorgeously photographed. And in many ways, it's it's a film also about uh, performance and the line that ex- exists between the masochist and the person playing di- the director. Like, who is really who? If the masochist is providing instructions for the dominant, is the dominant really the director at all then? Or, or, or are they just the performer? So it really explores the the fine lines and complications in this kind of a relationship. And it's all done within this very... Uh, beautiful sort of dreamy landscape there's a lot of butterfly imagery there's a lot of use of reflection uh, it's very rich amber colored uh, just theatrical experience that really elicits a great deal of of empathy from the audience for both characters and yet at the same time it's also very funny a lot of there's several discussions regarding a human toilet so it's it's actually a lot of fun and um Again, like I mentioned before, with a lot of movies on this list, the immersion into a place is something that is also very present here. I mean, this is a this is a film, for instance, like the Grand Budapest Hotel. It creates its own universe entirely that is, is very small and secluded, but very specific, and I admire that a great deal. Number two is um, the British film Lock, starring Tom Hardy. Saw this quite a while ago, maybe March or April 2014. You were just raving about this. I know, it's... You came to my house, you came to Annie's house, you were like, you gotta watch Lock. And I'm like, what? What What, what are you talking about, Lock? I unlocked the door. It was... <laughs> it was... Uh... It's by Stephen Knight, someone I'm not familiar with, uh, and it's quite simply a man's car journey from one place to another. We don't leave the car, we, uh, and it's only Tom Hardy in the car. He has a few phone calls along the way. For me, it's one of those films, uh, I love those films that are in one location. 
I'm always drawn to those because I think I like to see something creative done with so little. Um, I'm thinking of films like Buried, All Is Lost with uh, uh, Robert Redford, the, the boat, the sort of shipwreck, not shipwreck, but he's stranded, he lo- his boat sinks, and that's just Robert Redford, very little dialogue. Um, I just am always Can I, can I say something about that point, though? Yeah, which is which is actually one of the things I find most interesting about this movie because as you know I'm not I'm not nearly as crazy about it as you are. Yeah. But I think what's what's interesting about it is that for a film that is set within the context of a moving car, that doesn't really play a role in the storytelling. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm like when you think of single location thrillers, the phone booths, buried, even yeah. like you you could push it to like Die Hard, for instance. Those are movies that to some degree, not, not Die Hard, but the other two, that feel like they were conceived by the writer thinking, what if I set a film inside of a phone booth yeah. for the entire runtime? And then they devise the story to fit that concept. This feels like the opposite of that, where it's basically Stephen Wright wrote this storyline and devised it maybe in a couple different avenues and then just kind of came to the conclusion that the best way to do it was over the phone while he's driving a car. So it ends mm. up feeling kind of more like a, like a My Dinner with Andre movie or even like the Sunset Limited, the HBO film with Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson. So in that way, I actually think it's uh, that kind of conceiving it that way makes it a, a stronger film than something like a buried. phone booth or buried, yeah. Yeah. Good, good. Because I, I just feel like you get a lot of creativity when your limits are pushed in terms of, of what you can do. This is clearly a low-budget film. They don't couldn't um, afford to do much with the film, and that's may, maybe why they thought, uh, let's set it in a car then, if you know, it's going to be more interesting than just putting it in an office or something. You need something going on. And the writing is excellent. The director does well with the camera. Considering the limitations he's under, you know, you simply just got a motorway at night, and I think he managed. He sort of uses all the angles you could possibly think of for a car traveling down the road, and it's a fairly tight run film. It's not overly long. I think it's only eighty-five, ninety minutes max. That's all that's needed. Any longer would be definitely a stretch. Tom Hardy is doing his best work in this film. The focus is obviously 100% Tom Hardy. There's there's nothing else to keep your attention on. Well, he's, I he's think ha- I think a lot of the uh, the phone conver- the performances for the other actors, the voice performances. Oh, that is true, actually. Yes, spe- that is speaking true. specifically of the guy who plays the the man who has to replace him on the job. Yes, Andrew Andrew wonderful. Scott, I think his name is. Yeah, yeah, he's very good. He, I think it's Olivia Coleman plays his wife. I might be wrong. Um, but yes, the phone performances are good too. Uh, um, I, I I would have preferred a movie just about Andrew and the concrete pour. I mean, that was the most upsetting thing for me is I'm a fan of concrete. And right. I say that very honestly. I think concrete is awesome. And the subject of a concrete pour and the intricacies of that, I was ready for that movie. And instead, it's like, oh, he committed uh, adultery. Well, personally, I, I wouldn't be interested in concrete. You don't know, movie. though. Imagine a movie where Tom Hardy is just pouring concrete. 
This is better than British Parliament TV. <laughs> I don't think that would do it for me, though. Mm. But getting back to Locke, it's, uh, it's quite simply a, a gripping, intimate thriller. Good tension, good payoff, excellent performance from Tom Hardy. And it's a film that has stuck with me since I saw it almost a year ago now. But it's, I think it's a personal taste of mine. Like I mentioned, I like these single location films. The limitations can create some more impressive creative um, output, I think. I mean, it doesn't always work. I remember seeing one called um, 44-inch Chest with Ray Winston. Didn't do it. I mean, that was based on a play, I think. But um, the, the best writing, I think, you can sometimes get in a single location. and. Uh, Combined with Tom Hardy's performance here, I think that makes one of the, one of the best films of 2014. Sure, I think I told you this before when I did watch it. I have, I have a problem with his character in general, just being someone who somehow gets positioned on as being on the on morally the right side of every argument. I mean, he committed adultery, sure, but even the way he he spins that and just he justifies that as like telling his wife, oh, well, she was alone. She had nothing. It didn't mean anything. This child is going to bring new life, new meaning to her life. In part, you could read that as like ambiguous in determining whether that dialogue is earnest or if it's him trying to convince himself that he did the right thing. But I don't know that I don't know that it's portrayed in a way that's meant to be in question and I actually have a problem with the two female characters both being like overly distressed women who I think in the context of this movie kind of they're like getting in the way of of him trying to do the right thing I mean it's a very redemptive movie it actually it it has a lot of things that you would find in like Christian fiction but I, I just I don't know. There's just questions I have. And then I don't, I, I don't think it's photographed. You know, so much of it is centered on Tom Hardy's performance. And so much I feel his performance is dictated through body language. But I don't feel like the camera places any emphasis on that. So I feel like there's a better way to photograph the film and really like communicate his psychology. And you could just get rid of those dead father monologues. And really just emphasize like the tightly framing of his hands, his his body, the way that his posture is rising and falling. That's difficult to capture in a car, though. Huh? The amazing things you can do with cinema these days. You can figure it out. So I disagree in that I, I don't think he's... To me, he didn't come off as a redemptive character. He might be trying to convince himself he's done the right... He's, what he did was acceptable, but I never found that... As I was learning more, I was going, oh, right, yeah, I see where I see where he's coming from. That's perfectly valid. I always thought no, he's committed adultery. The, the overly distressed women, I can't remember too well the, the pregnant woman, but um, his wife, I, I can see being distressed, just learning that her husband slept with another a woman. So I don't quite see where you're coming from there. It's In just, terms they're of the just camera so work, extreme. I'll, I'll accept that. There's limitations there. There's not a lot to look at in terms of there's no you know beautiful vistas or or much. You're talking about the M M4, I think, going from Wales to London. It's it's nothing beautiful to look at. Well, which is also, 
I've never seen a highway that's more evenly lit in my life. I could not believe that there was just lights everywhere constantly through that whole film. Well, the the UK uh, road infrastructure is pretty well lit. <laughs> well, that they debated it on BBC British Parliament. Got those lights up. No, my my whole thing with the the women in distress is in comparison to him, they're depicted in such an extreme way in how irrational they behave, which it's normal in the context of reality, but in comparison to him and the way that that performance is directed, it does not, it feels like they're being pushed to this extreme that doesn't feel, it doesn't feel honest in this, in this context. I don't know how else to explain it. It's just something that I thought was questionable in the movie. So you're saying if a wife finds out that her husband's been cheating on her, to be distressed is, is no, unusual. No, but, but the way that it, it establishes – the problem I have with these phone call conversations is all of these people are so extreme. Oh, my God. Like, And he's Donald? Donald? Calm down now. And then he's he does like, tell a lot of people to calm down. <laughs> and he's like telling his wife, you know, I don't know what her name is. Donna? Donna? Calm down now. Like it's a, it just, I don't know. There's that, something. Is that your Welsh, is that your Welsh accent? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now Donna, calm down. <laughs> calm down. I'm just, coming back to Cardiff. The discrepancy in the style of performances, it's just, maybe it's just, it's the difference between directing an actor that's there and directing an actor that's performing as a voice. But it just seems like these phone call conversations are like they're being performed on a stage and Tom Hardy is in a movie. And that discrepancy kind of creates this uh, – I think it's part of the problem why I see him as being sort of like this Christ figure in the movie. But, I mean, look, so it's I, far I from get, being a, I, a I feel bad like movie. he's done something wrong. But he is doing his best in the situation. I don't forgive him for what he's done. But I admire that he is not shirking his responsibility. He's going to help this woman, help the child. He's also accepting the blame and uh, all the punishment that comes with cheating on this woman as well. I didn't ever pick up on, oh, well, I understand this woman was lonely, so of course he'd sleep with her. But th but then, like, when his wife says, you cannot come back in the house, you cannot see the kids, like, don't ever talk to me again. I think that's a pretty standard reaction for someone who's just learned that information. See, that's I guess that's the difference. Is I think normally, yes, if you and I were in a relationship and <laughs> you slept with Andy and I found out about it and then Andy was having your baby and you're driving, you're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. In the context of this reality, yes, I'd be upset. I'd say, Nick, don't ever jive with me ever again. Now, in the case of this movie – there's something I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll revisit the movie again, but there was just something so overwhelmingly about like give me a break. Like he you know, it's and I'm not saying she should, I'm saying in this movie, the way that it's treated, it's like Stephen Knight is saying, like, Come on, woman, give him a break. He made a mistake, but now he's trying to clean it up. Like and I just don't I don't agree with that. I don't know. But I mean it's fine. Well, I'd have to disagree with that. I didn't uh didn't get that feeling. Uh, from watching the film. Uh, so my number two is a film called Ha Ha, 
which is spelled J-A-U-J-A. Uh, it's directed by Lissandro Alonso and starring Viggo Mortensen as a Danish engineer who is employed by the Argentinian army living on an at an outpost in Patagonia with his teenage daughter who runs off in the middle of the night with a young soldier. So Viggo Mortensen's character, who is also a military captain of the Danish army, sets off into this desert alone to rescue his daughter. I hate to be so redundant, but landscapes, they're a big thing here, again. This film is shot on location in Argentina. It is absolutely one of the most beautifully photographed films I've ever seen. It's actually shot in a one three three one aspect ratio, which is 4-3. But the other interesting thing about it is it has sort of this uh, curved vignette. So you actually end up losing a little bit more of the screen. And it kind of, it's through that, that vignette of kind of like an old phot photograph where the edges are a little rounded, they're curved. And I'll be honest, this movie just, it, it plays to every possible sort of sensibility in, in terms of film, things that I love to see in movies. Uh, it has sort of this Herzogian quality about it where Haha -ha in a opening text is described as this land, mystical land that has evaded men who have searched for it to bring them great, uh, great happiness and yet no one has discovered it. And so Mortensen is, who's largely in the, you know, it's largely him in the, in this desert by himself, which, you know, it's not a, it's not like a sand duned desert. It, there are rocks and caverns and mountains and things like that. So the film's largely him alone in this desert, just having to physically manage through this, these landscapes. And the film's, you know, I said it was beautifully photographed. And it feels in a way like a John Ford movie, the way that it foregrounds and backgrounds characters in relationship to one another. There's a scene early on in the film where Mortensen is left of center frame and off in the distance, there's a, the captain of the Argentinian army is sitting in the, the hot springs and he's masturbating and you can kind of just make out that he's masturbating. And it, it really isn't that much distance between the two physically, but because of the way that this 4-3 aspect ratio actually crops off so much of the frame, but it actually almost creates greater distance within the frame that's there. It, it almost emphasizes the landscapes even more, kind of deceptively creates this illusion of great distance between two things when maybe it isn't that far apart. And the film plays with that. It's kind of always a character in the foreground in relationship to a character or a location in the background. The performances are very sort of, they're very stylized. There's a lot of, it's a very still, slow film. The body is very statuesque. But for me, you know, in terms of landscape, you know, this is a movie to me where it really allows landscape to reflect characters' emotions. It's not, you know, just this stock postcard photography where it's, you know, sweeping helicopter shots of mountain ranges and it's not really inherently saying anything in the film to me that this is a movie more so about the space that the story is is being told in rather than the people in the story and there's also near the end of the film there's sort of a twist in the last 10 minutes that creates a suggestion of a potential dream narrative which i i have some apprehensions about i'm not sure how i feel about it if that is really what was intended 
but I'd like to prefer to think that Haha being this sort of uh, mythic land, it is something that for some it presents itself as treachery. To others, it's it's pure fantasy. I mean, it's it's a movie that, like you with Locke, I think is just a personal thing where this just plays into all these things that I am interested in beyond just seeing films in the theater. I have an interest in history, 19th century history, which is the period that the film is set in. And like I've said earlier, I am interested in landscapes and how you tell stories with landscapes. And I think this is a great, it's a great example of that. So going down in history, along with, now I think I'm right here, Drive, Place Beyond the Pines, and Moonrise Kingdom. Who picked Place Beyond the Pines? I think that was me. As number one? Last year, yeah. You weren't on the show last year. I thought I sent in an email. Oh, okay. For you, I see, I see. So my number one, going down, you might have guessed, it's uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Another brilliant installment from Wes Anderson. Sometimes when you give a, a director a bigger budget and whatever he wants in terms of casting, you know, sometimes that can lead to trouble and you find sometimes these directors who have had initial success manage to get what they want for their films in the, in the future but um, just can't quite recapture the, the charm and magic of their first films. Wes Anderson is not having that problem. His recent films I've been, I think have been just as good if not better than his previous work. This one, I think, I'd like to give it a bit of time before I state it's his best ever, but I do feel at the moment like it's really, really up there. It's got a good cast, but Ray Fiennes, I thought was masterful in his comedy. An actor who is not associated with that genre, that type of work, really showed that he could make us laugh, something I, I wasn't really sure what he was capable of. His Voldemort performance is a great bit of comedy. Harry Potter, you will die. That scene where he's that dead baby at the terminal. Oh, <laughs> that's a that's hysterical. That cracked me up. Yeah. Um, we've still got Anderson's style in this film. His, I don't know what it is about his style, but you just feel like there's a precision that goes into all of his films. It seems to come across that he has thought and planned out this film so much. Whether that is the case or not, I don't know. But that's the impression I get when I see his films, in terms of the placing of the camera, the sets, the backgrounds, where he positions his characters, it seems almost effortless for him now, although I'm sure that is definitely not the case. I'm sure a lot of hard work goes into it, but it just seems to be so easy for him now, and it just seems to click. We've got quite a different setting here, like Zach mentioned, you know, we're talking about pre-war Europe, and it's sort of a Anderson's fictional take on pre-war Europe. He's taken a few liberties in terms of the history around it all. Not that that seems to matter. But this film jumps from comedy to violence to romance, and there's no no problem. We can move through those genre shifts without difficulty. 
I saw it twice when it came out. Like I said, that's quite rare for me to go back to the cinema and see a film again, unless it's quite special. I laughed a lot. It's visually beautiful. It's very witty. And um, is a film that I, I really I want to watch it again a third time. I'm really keen to see it again sometime soon. The, the moment that really made me laugh, though, that I just barely laughed for probably a good minute or two afterwards, was um, when Ray Fiennes goes to the confessional booth with to see Serge. This is about a good hour or so into the film. We finally find Serge. Do you remember this bit, Zach? I do indeed, Nick. Where they go up to the monastery and all those men are going, are you Monsieur Gustave? Da, 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 da. That, which is quite amusing in itself. They finally get into the um, confessional box to see Serge, who gives them some details. He's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh, right, okay. There's a second copy of the second will. Mm-hmm. And then Serge is just silent, and he says, well, don't keep us in suspense, man. This has been a complete fucking nightmare. I couldn't stop laughing when I heard that. I was almost crying with laughter. And, um, yeah, it was just an absolutely charming film. I, I, yeah, I adored it. And, and again, that was a film probably saw in March, April of last year. Nothing has come close to it for me in terms of entertainment. And uh, it's another film I've spread the word about, tried to get people to see. And uh, I do think Wes Anderson's audience is growing in terms of, I think he's bringing in a lot of uh, people who at first wouldn't, wouldn't have been interested in his films. I think Moonrise Kingdom and this have really, what's the word, he's sort of, expanded in terms of his audience i think he's he's not a niche director anymore he's a pretty big time director now big name that uh, people are interested in so for me grand budapest hotel was the most entertaining most enjoyable and exciting film of 2014 you know the other moment you're talking about the monks and the are you monsieur gustave there's yeah. a lot of things like that in that film you have that that same kind of sequence with the uh the society of secret keys where you have to call and, you know, the passing down from each hotel manager. Yeah. The delivery of messages throughout that movie. It's plays an important role in the, in the plot. Mm. I also like the sort of, uh, the backgrounds, you know, the, it's not real. You can tell it's something fake, but there's something, um, quite charming about it. Oh, in terms of, paintings, you mean? yeah, the map, yeah. I'm thinking of the hotels and when they go up in the, the sort of cable cars and those sort of things are all very um, intricate and and charming, and it's it's unusual technique to see in a modern film, certainly. And there's a craft to it, you know. It's almost like model making. It's quite impressive. Yeah, well, it feels like this is the film where he integrated things he discovered and learned when making Fantastic Mr. Fox. He's sort of blending yes. the the reality of that film with the reality of his other films. Yes, yeah, definitely. Good point. My number one is Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne's film Two Days, One Night, starring Marion Cotillard. Uh, this is the story of a woman, Sandra, who, after just coming off a depression, is faced with losing her job if she cannot convince her co-workers to reject their uh, monetary bonuses in favor of voting to keep her on as a, as an employee uh, at this solar panel factory where she works. So she's then essentially forced by her husband to physically confront each person over this weekend that she works with and ask them for their support. So when you look at the movie on paper, you know, you just read it 
in some regards, it just it sounds like the sort of like classic Hollywood melodrama uh, of like the 1930s and 40s with this very humanist message. And I think there's a lot of similarities you could draw to this film and films of that kind. I mean, it's much more interesting, much more interesting than say like a Frank Capra melodrama, uh, because it's while it is exploring these very domestic, this very domestic universal narrative, uh, the Dardens being who they are, they maintain the pathos, but they never aesthetically become precious or saccharine. It's grounded with a very direct simplicity. They keep the camera in close proximity to the characters, and Cotillard is constantly uh, framed in these conversations by she's framed around some kind of physical barrier. So a lot of times she's talking pe- to people within doorways, along fence posts, hallway corners, environments that visually create and display sort of the divide between her and the coworkers due to this situation. And so, you know, when she is successful, there is some kind of crossover in that barrier. So in that way, it actually kind of becomes a movie about her overcoming physical barriers just as much as it is about her overcoming her own bouts with depression uh, and not only proving to others that she has self-worth, but proving that to herself as well. And I think that's a very simple theme, but it's one that doesn't get explored very often in films. I think... Marion Cotillard, I've always liked her as an actress, but I feel like she achieves one of the most just physically challenging roles. She is able to convey the the physical exhaustion uh, that comes with undergoing uh, bouts of depression. Have you have you seen uh, Rust and Bone? I have not. No. I think you'd like that too. It's uh, another good performance from Cotillard. It's a very meticulously designed performance. I mean, each gesture is very communicative. The rising and the falling of her of her posture with each success or failure, uh, but it never kind of boils over into this like very over exaggeration. And it's a movie that it speaks very directly about the nature of depression. It isn't treated as this sort of tightrope topic that has to be whispered it doesn't it doesn't patronize the audience in that way or or nor does it it present characters who take pity on her because of this it it looks at it from a very empathetic perspective it was a really overwhelming experience you know and it, it's it's stayed for me for the last several months since seeing it and i know some people know who listen to the show that i suffer from major depression disorder and I'm very much is someone that struggles with a lot of the things that she is faced with in this film so in that way there's sort of an inherent uh connection that was made so perhaps you know kind of seeing this person uh come to accept herself as a human being and accept her for her faults and 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 feel good about what she's done, even if the outcome is maybe not positive. I don't want to spoil the ending. 
that was something that no other movie that I've seen in a really long time has ever has ever given me. So, I mean, separating myself from that particular bias, I think any film that encourages people to be empathetic and and to judge people's self-worth uh, according to something human rather than just their 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 monetary value with a, within a company and something that is this well directed, this well designed, uh, is worth seeing. So before we conclude the show, uh, Nick, are there any films you'd like to mention that you enjoyed that didn't end up making your top ten list? So my honourable mentions were The the Box Trolls, uh, very charming, slightly creepy and almost grotesque, <laughs> so maybe not charming, a slightly grotesque and unusual animated film by Leica Studios, who have given us uh, Coraline and Paranorman, two films I've, I've really enjoyed in the past. Handcrafted stop-motion animation, a la Wallace and Gromit and Ardman. I'm always a big fan of that. I really appreciate that style of animation. And um, Box Trolls, good. Not up there with Paranorman or Coraline quite, but still, very, still better than most uh, animated uh, films you'll find in the cinema. Uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, a good continuation of that story. Andy Serkis, again, very impressive as Caesar, who's developed a lot in this uh, second film. I would say the human characters are actually pretty dull and let this let this film down. Uh, I'd much rather spend more time with the apes than the humans in this film. But the technology is impressive. The new director, who I can't remember his name, but he did... Um, he did... The remake of the vampire Swedish vampire film. Uh, oh, uh, let, let, let the in. right one in. Let me in. Yeah. Let me in. He did. Let Matt me Reeves. in, which I've not seen. Matt Reeves. Yes. Matt Reeves. I think brings a new uh, dimension to this film. It's uh, it's good. Good Hollywood action summer blockbuster film, and uh, the apes are certainly doing well. And I, I look forward to the third one. Gone Girl. Excellent film by David Fincher. Probably m- maybe my number 11. Uh, ben Affleck gives a, gives a good performance. Um, I didn't know anything about the story going in, so was pleasantly surprised by it. Uh, did well to avoid all the spoilers. Um, and it's a good film from Fincher. Quite uh, unusual film. The Raid 2. Probably, in terms of just action, probably the most mesmerizing action film of 2014. What these guys can do in terms of the choreography of their fights is is really impressive and probably the best around at the moment. I'm a, I believe that these guys have been involved in the recent Star Wars film, so I'm looking forward to some awesome lightsaber battles uh, come uh, December this year. Uh, but The Raid 2, if you just want to see awesome action, that this is it for you. The director also tries to bring a bit of credibility to the action in terms of trying to expand this into a bit more of a Godfather style crime family uh, story revolving around the action but really we're all there just to see the action um so i would say less confusing plots involving crime families and more kick-ass action for the raid three please 
you you say that like they're taking recommendations here or something. Yes, yeah. Well, this is if they want to get a golden jar of turkey next year, they should read these notes oh, and uh, listen to my comments. The year you give a raid movie the golden jive turkey award it's possible the uh the lego movie uh phil lord and chris miller some of the funniest directors and writers around at the moment uh the animation style for this one in particular was really uh fun to see and and they actually captured the spirit of lego which i was really pleased with it wasn't just i mean there is a bit of a corporate commercial style sense to the film but they actually understood that lego is about when I had Lego, it was all about you get a random bucket of bits and you build a plane, you build a ship, you build whatever you can out of the stuff that you've got with you. And um, that, I thought, that spirit of Lego still remained in the film, and I was very happy to see that. I built my first girlfriend with that bucket. Oh, well, good for you. And then another one, which I think's been criminally uh, ignored by uh, by many, is Muppets Most Wanted. I think this was... A Muppets film that, yes, it wasn't as good as the previous installments, but it was by no means a poor effort by the Muppets. I thought Muppets Most Wanted was pretty funny. Maybe it overdoes it a bit with the Russian gulag sequence, but I laughed a lot in Muppets Most Wanted, and I'll admit, yes, I am a big Muppets fan. There's definitely some bias there. Um, Ty Burrell and Sam the Eagle were hilarious. Constantine, the Kermit the Frog, impersonator made me laugh a lot even ricky gervais who i'm a bit fed up with did a fairly decent job i liked muppet most wanted i don't understand why it's uh, been criminally ignored by everyone and it seems that now disney will not be making any more muppet films thanks to no one going to see this film i think the critics were harsh on it and uh, would like to make sure it gets the credit it deserves it should be said that nick is also someone who thinks muppets treasure island is a good movie yeah, exactly. So if you think Muppets, if you liked Muppet Treasure Island, then you're definitely going to like Muppets Most Wanted. I feel people wrote it off a bit too quickly. And those are my honorable mentions. All right, I'll quickly run through mine. Goodbye to Language, the new Jean-Luc Godard film. Bim Bam Boon, Las Luchas Morenas, which is a uh, short documentary about female wrestlers in Mexico. There's a great sequence where one of them dances with a giant pig head. Birdman it would be another one. Close Curtain, the Jafar Panahi film, follow-up to This Is Not a Film. Coherence, uh, the documentary Fifi Howls from Happiness Flows, which is a video installation piece that is focused on the nature of music, an indigenous tribe, I believe it's in Colombia, uh, and how women use music as a way to express uh, political beliefs and protest against uh, oppression. Let the Fire Burn, the found footage documentary. Uh, Leviathan, the Russian drama that's, I believe, nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. Petite Quinquin, which is a Bruno Dumas film. It was a, actually a mini, aired as a miniseries in France uh, that you can watch as a complete film. Very peculiar uh, some absolutely fantastic performances by non-actors. Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac, which I should clarify, I still haven't, I haven't viewed the director's cut, cut, which I think had I rewatched the film and seen that version of the movie, uh, this could have very well been on my back half of, of my top 10. Uh, Respire, which is, uh, French for 
for Breathe. Uh, this is a film directed by the actress Melanie Laurent. Uh, that's this sort of shrewd high school girl drama that is so much more devastating than you could ever imagine a movie like this to be, but it is absolutely thrilling. Uh, Selma will be another one. The Strange Little Cat, the documentary What Now Remind Me, and uh, the documentary Visitors. La nuit n'en finit plus Et j'attends que quelque chose vienne Mais je ne sais qui, je ne sais quoi J'ai envie d'aimer, j'ai envie de vivre So that concludes the Golden Jive Turkey Award Show for 2014. I would like to thank my guest Nick Wheatley, who you can occasionally listen to right here on the Film Jive Podcast and follow on Twitter at Wheatley underscore Nick. I would also like to thank all of the guests who contributed to this episode, as well as all of the guests who appeared on the show in 2014. And of course, I must thank the people who listen to this show each and every episode. Without your support and encouragement, Film Jive would not be possible. If you would like to get in touch with me or any of the other Film Jive contributors, you can send an email to filmjive at gmail.com and connect with us via Facebook, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. If you are enjoying the show, we would very much appreciate a positive review on either of our iTunes or Stitcher Radio channels, as those are always a great help. Thank you for listening to this year's Golden Jive Turkey Awards show, and until next time, keep on jiving. Quelqu'un qui vient.